Thank you very much, Rob. Well, good morning, Jubilee. Um, you know, it is so great to continue our series today. I've really enjoyed it. So we've been looking at foundations, haven't we? And um, over the past three weeks, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians. So if you've got your Bibles, feel free to start turning there. And um, this has helped us to dig deeper into what God says about who we are and what it means that our true identity comes from being in Christ. And I love how the first week Rob got to count, didn't he, how many times in Christ or in him is mentioned just in those first few verses of Ephesians. And it was a lot. <laughs> so this foundation of being in Christ actually helps us to understand the first part of our Jubilee vision which is beautifully displayed over here. So the first bit of being a community of people who know who they are. Because actually there's, there's so many ways, isn't there, that we can answer that question, who are you? It's a, a question that reminds me of my favourite childhood game, Guess Who? Where you'd ask your, your opponent questions and try and guess which person they were hiding on their card. But of course, you could only ask questions about external features or accessories. My favourite one was always, do they have glasses? But we know, don't we, that the Bible goes so much deeper and gets to the very heart of who God says we are. And so we've seen already that our identity doesn't come from what we look like or from what we do. It comes from our position in Christ. The place where, by faith, Ephesians 1 verse 3 says we get to experience every spiritual blessing. Every, not some, not many, but every spiritual blessing. And we've seen how we've been chosen to be holy and blameless. That is who we are because we are in Christ. And last week, Rob showed us how we have been adopted as sons and daughters. God is our father, and we have been brought into his family. So we've been given significance and authority because of our position in Christ. So today, we're going to be looking at the truth that when we put our trust in Jesus and become part of God's family through adoption, we can be confident that we have been forgiven and redeemed because the, the debt of sin has been paid for by Christ. So let's read the passage. I'm going to read Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3. And this is Paul writing. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him 
have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. <coughs> so good. So I want to start by thinking about what this word redemption means. Now, this is a word, actually, that we do use in our day-to-day life. I'm sure, like me, you have many loyalty points cards in your wallet or downloaded onto your phone. I counted mine the other day. I currently have 19. Yeah. So they range from my Tesco club card, which I probably make the most use of, down to a Matalan card, which I actually didn't know I had. (laughs) But the idea is we have these cards and... As we spend money in store, we are rewarded with points that build up. And when we have enough points, we can redeem them or exchange them for goods or money off. And then we gain possession of something. Rich and I got some lovely Denby mugs recently from our club card points. Now, this this is really a very simple illustration, and actually, you have to go a bit further to get a deeper understanding. Because actually, redemption isn't just getting something for free. It's the price you pay to get back something that is yours, but has been lost. Now, I have a friend who was in the middle of working on her dissertation, And it was a really stressful time. So one day she decided she needed a bit of peace and quiet. So she drove to the university library and she parked on the road outside, something that she'd done many, many times before. However, on this occasion, she completely forgot that she was only allowed to park in this particular place for one hour. It was a main road, busy route into town. So after a really long and productive day, she packed up, headed back out to her car, only to be faced with a completely empty road, no cars whatsoever. It immediately dawned on her what had happened. And so she went back into the library and asked if they knew where her car would have been taken to. And they handed her a card and said, phone this number. She had to get a friend to drive her to the place where her car had been towed to in order to regain possession of it. Now, when your car gets impounded for being left in the wrong place at the wrong time, they don't just hand your keys over. You've broken the law by parking illegally. You have to pay a significant price to get it back. And that's exactly what my friend had to do. She paid the enormous penalty price to cover the several parking tickets that had built up on her windscreen over the course of the day before they finally towed it, as well as the release fee that would allow her to get her car back. So how does all this relate to the redemption that Paul says we have received in verse 7? Listen again, in him we have redemption through his blood. 
Now, to understand this, we need to consider our spiritual condition. The Bible says we originally belonged to God. In the first chapter of the Bible, we are told God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's Genesis 1.27. We were his, made to enjoy perfect relationship with our maker. We read how God blessed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as they ruled over all creation, completely in partnership with him. And then, in Genesis 2, God gives one clear instruction. They are not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They can eat from all the other trees, just not this one. And this was a loving instruction given to protect them. God says in Genesis 2.17, For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Just one chapter later, we see humankind's fall from the perfect condition in which they were created to an utter state of sin. Adam and Eve choose to disobey God's commands. And instead of taking him at his word, they believe the snake's empty promise that if they eat the fruit from this particular tree, they will not certainly die. Sin has been called the great deceiver. It holds before us endless pleasures, but fails to tell us the price or consequence of following its attractions. And we see some of these consequences immediately following Adam and Eve's choice to go their own way in Genesis 3. So verse 7, their eyes are open to their nakedness and they experience shame for the first time. Verse 8, they hide from God. They experience fear and separation from him. And then verse 14 onwards, they experience the curse of sin. There's opposition between them and Satan. Women have pain in childbearing. Conflict and blame disrupt human relationships. And they have to labor and sweat to get food from the ground until the day they return to the ground. And then, verse 23, they are banished from the Garden of Eden and, crucially, are no longer allowed to eat from the tree of life and live forever. Everything that follows in the Bible does so as a consequence of the events that took place in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 4, we see the effects of sin as Adam and Eve's sons enter the story and one kills the other. And by Genesis 6, sin's dominance is seen in every human. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. 
And you know, we have inherited this human condition. Sin isn't just what we do or don't do that displeases God or the choices we make that hurt ourselves or others. It's the very condition that we are born into. The inclination and direction of our hearts. And Paul describes this spiritual condition as being in slavery to sin. Romans 6, 20 says, When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. So, in other words, left alone, our spiritual condition means we can never be morally right or justifiable. And this moral failure means we are breaking God's law. Remember, God's law was given to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 to 24. And this was the moral code that they were to live by in order to be the holy and set-apart people of God. Jesus sums up this law in Matthew 22 when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the righteous standard that our holy and perfect God holds us to. Can we say that we have always loved God every moment of every day with all that we are? Have we consistently loved our neighbour as ourselves? You see, the law reveals our sin, the inclination of our human heart. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And this slavery to sin is real. It's not an illusion, but it's a common fact about every human being. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, the law condemns us. We are found guilty. We've broken God's law. If we don't find rescue from the guilt of our sin, we will be punished. Sin is so serious that the law demands that the wage or payment of sin is the death of the sinner. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Is there anything we can do to get ourselves out of this mess? You know, all our works, all our striving, it cannot offset our debt of sin. We cannot buy off God or fool him or sneak into heaven. There is a price that needs to be paid. Just as my friend had broken the law by parking illegally and had to pay a penalty price to regain possession of her car, 
So a price must be paid to satisfy the demands of God's righteous and holy law, which we have violated and broken by our sin. Only Jesus could pay this price. And you know, this was always the Father's plan. You see, Jesus tells us in Mark 10 to 45 that the reason he came into the world was to give his life as a ransom for many. We hear this word ransom when we read of someone who's been kidnapped and a ransom price is demanded in order to set them free. And in Paul's time, it was specifically applied to the ransoming of slaves. So people sold into slavery because of poverty could be redeemed or bought back by a relative. So when Paul says in Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption, his original readers would have understood the word to mean release from bondage through the payment of a price. And the price Paul refers to in Ephesians is the blood of Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, which is a shorthand way of pointing to his sacrificial death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. I love how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. This is the price he paid for the debt of sin we owed. We are not redeemed by our good works, or anything we have done or could ever do. We're not even redeemed by the teaching of Jesus or the fact that he could do miracles. It is what he did on the cross that purchased our salvation, our freedom from sin. It took the holy, precious blood of Christ, shed on the cross as a ransom price, to satisfy the legal demands of the law that stood against us and condemned us. Jesus became our substitute on the cross, having lived the perfect life that we could never live, and so fulfilled God's law on our behalf, taking full responsibility for our sin. And this included its guilt, and punishment, and its ruling power in our lives. So, when we receive what Jesus has done for us in shedding his precious blood on the cross, we can experience the forgiveness of sin. And this forgiveness is totally extravagant. Listen again to verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. 
I can't get away at the moment from the parable of the lost son. Jesus tells the story in Luke 15 to show us what his father is like. And I think it's a story that wonderfully illustrates the riches of God's grace that he lavishes on us. So the younger son asks his father for the share in in the estate, and then he sets off for a distant land, only to squander his newfound wealth in wild living. The elder brother remains at home, working in the field. But when the younger brother returns home with his tail between his legs, concluding he'll just be like one of the hired servants, we see what it is, in fact, that makes his father's heart rejoice. It is not an elder brother who works and strives incessantly for the father's approval, but a younger brother who lets the father do everything for him. It was the father's joy that he could lavish the ring and the robe and the sandals and the feast upon the younger brother who came home saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I love this quote from Watchman Nee. He writes, God is so wealthy that his chief delight is to give. His treasure store is so full that it is pain to him when we refuse him an opportunity of lavishing those treasures upon us. I wonder, do you need to experience the riches of God's grace today? Do you know the freedom of coming confidently before the Father, knowing your sin is dealt with once and for all through the blood of Jesus? He has done all that was necessary for you to be saved from the hopeless condition of sin. The ransom price has been paid. A few weeks ago, Rob asked us to share with each other our story of forgiveness and salvation. For me, the penny dropped when I was 17, and I realized Jesus died for me. It was the price of my sin that kept him on the cross and paid the debt that I couldn't pay. And my life has never been the same since. If you've never experienced the forgiveness of God, you can today, right now. Why put it off? You can come to him and say, Jesus, forgive me for my sin. I want to follow you for the rest of my life. It really is that simple. And for others, I wonder if there might be some things that you just need to get right with the Father today. You know you've been redeemed, but you need to experience his forgiveness again. Just come to him. Receive his forgiveness. He wants to lavish his grace on you, his son, his daughter. Because, you know, when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. Because you are in Christ. 
I just want us to pause just for a moment now. I just want to give you a moment, if that's you. If you know that you need to just get some stuff right with God, let your heart go to him. Just take a moment to do that. Holy Spirit, would you come? One John one nine says, "If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness." So, as we come into land, my hope is that we would experience a fresh encounter with our Redeemer today. Isn't it just so easy to fall into the trap of doing, running around for God, wanting him to notice our good works, falling into elder brother syndrome? You know, the enemy loves it when we fall back into living as though we are under the law because he knows we can never fulfill it. Our Christian life in Christ from beginning to end is based on the principle of utter dependence upon Jesus. And I believe the Father is calling us again today to enjoy what he has done for us, to rest in our identity as those who have been redeemed and forgiven, and not to try and set out to attain it for ourselves. I love the picture in Ephesians 2, verse 6, which says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. My husband, Rich, will tell you that I find it quite hard to sit still. I'm an achiever. I like getting stuff done. And I sometimes find it hard to sit and watch a film because I feel like there's better things I could be doing. But because of our position in Christ, that is exactly what we can do. Sit still. Jesus is seated on his throne. And incredibly, we have been raised up and seated with him. No more striving. No more self-reliance. No more earning his approval. You are enough because you are forgiven and you are redeemed. This is such good news. It's what we've been celebrating this morning. So as we finish, I want to give you a challenge. Who do you know who needs to hear this? Because do you know that as a redeemed child of God, you are now carrying kingdom authority. And whenever you awaken to that authority, it changes you and everyone around you. 
There are people that you are going to interact with this week who don't know what it means to be forgiven and redeemed from sin. Who don't know God as their father who loves to lavish the riches of his grace. You are his presence carrier and you get to release peace and comfort and joy and hope to a world that is desperately seeking it. Just as you go about your ordinary business, like Trev shared earlier. I read recently, God doesn't send the lost into the church. He sends the found into the world. And he wants to use us to reveal to others what kind of father he is. One who pays the price for the mess that we've made of things. The price for freedom that we should have paid. At prayer school on Wednesday, we challenged one another to start the day with a simple prayer. Father, what do you want me to do today? Who do you want me to speak to? And this isn't a heavy thing. It's not a pressured thing. It's a way of responding to the invitation to partner with Jesus, to go out into the world and make disciples. There's times that I've prayed that prayer and been amazed at how Jesus leads me to the people who he is already working in. He is the redeemer. He paid the price. And he has given us his authority to go and carry his presence into all the places that he has put us. So I'd love to finish by giving us an opportunity to respond. I wonder, can we stand together if you're able to? Let's just take a moment to let the truth of verse 7 settle in your heart again. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. His blood is still enough for you to cleanse you, to cover you, to protect you. Through his blood, we have freedom to come to our Heavenly Father without guilt or shame or fear. Through his blood, we have victory over sin and the devil and all his works. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. So, Jesus, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for the blood that you shed for us. Thank you for the price that you paid so that we could be forgiven. I just pray for us now for a revelation of the authority that we carry because we are your redeemed sons and daughters. And we want to accept your invitation to go and share that with everybody. It's too good to keep to ourselves. 
So Holy Spirit, would you just come? Just come and fill us again. Father, come and meet us. Come and drive this truth deep into our heart. Help us to live in that place of being seated in Christ, knowing that we are redeemed and we are forgiven. We love you, Jesus. We just want to give all that we are to you again this morning because you are so worthy and you are so good. We praise you, Jesus.